Hello, and welcome to the Gaming Street Podcast, your guide to the business of video games. I'm Stephen Wong. And I'm Olivia Da Silva. This week, we'll be talking about whether the free-to-play revenue model for mobile games is a sustainable business. Later, we'll discuss the growing trend of video game subscription services. But first, our top story. With 2020 just around the corner, publishers have been wrapping up the hype for their upcoming big releases. In the case of Ubisoft, however, its latest announcement was a hard pill to swallow, with three of its major titles being delayed. Gods and Monsters, Rainbow Six Quarantine, and Watch Dogs Legion are being pushed to the next fiscal year for a few reasons, and the impact is set to have a ripple effect on Ubisoft's financial results. Olivia, can you tell us what led Ubisoft to this decision? According to Ubisoft president and CEO Yves Guillemot, the push and release dates happened in order to give development teams more time to quote-unquote deliver optimal experiences for each game. He added that it came as part of the company's plan to maximize future value of its brands for employees, players, and shareholders. So basically, they want to make the games better for everybody involved because a better game means more money for them, for shareholders, players get a better experience. In their mind, it's a win-win across the board. Further, Guillermo added that Ubisoft hadn't capitalized on its last two AAA titles, uh, highlighting that Ghost Recon Breakpoint had very disappointing critical reception and sales during its first few weeks. So what I'm trying to kind of figure out, at least from my perspective, is as to whether this is a valid reason to delay three major titles. I, I do think it's good that they give these games a little bit more time to kind of get that extra polish on and really make sure that they're good to go before, you know, they're expecting AAA costs, you know, being $80 for a new release and that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure how the community has reacted, but they're also, I imagine they're pretty upset because with this being, you know, them the games being pushed to the next fiscal year, that that's a pretty far range of dates as to when we might actually see these games, you know. So not having the specifics, people might be a little bit upset about it. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a little bit upset that Watch Dogs Legion isn't coming out when it should because that game looks fantastic. <laughs> At the same time, I understand where Ubisoft is coming from, and I see it kind of in the same position it was when it launched Assassin's Creed Unity a few years back, and that pretty much bombed because of severe technical problems. That's when Ubisoft kind of said, okay, we're going to take a year off from the Assassin's Creed franchise and rethink our strategy on this. And then they came out with Assassin's Creed Origins and then Assassin's Creed Odyssey a year after that. And both games were big hits. It was the right decision at the time. And I'm guessing that this is the right decision for these games. For the most part, I think that this is the kind of thing that you have to face when a large part of your portfolio is dependent on sequels mm -hmm. because... You're, you're going to be publishing games that have to innovate while not being too similar to the game that came before it. And that was the major problem that a lot of critics had with Ghost Recon Breakpoint. Critics said that the story was okay and the voice acting was on point, with Punisher actor John Bernthal doing a great job. But it was too much like the game that came before it. Ubisoft has a good reputation for taking responsibility for its mistakes, and I think that it's on the right path. You know, I respect any company that kind of holds off on releasing a game saying, look, the quality isn't where it needs to be, and we want to do better for the fans and for just everybody involved in this project. And I can respect that. 
However, the only, you know, major catch with something like that, as far as I'm concerned, is that this really puts the pressure on them to produce a quality product. And, you know, I, I think back to, just as an example, when the Spyro uh, Reignited trilogy came out, it was originally docketed, I believe, to be released in June. And then it got pushed by three months, uh, citing the same sort of thing, you know, saying we need a little more time to fix it out and tweak little things here and there. And when it came out, supposedly in the third game in the installment, there were game-breaking glitches. Like, not everything was bad by any means, but it's like there were still fundamental problems with the game's actual playability. And so, you know, if you're taking that extra time for whatever reason and you still come out with a product that has functionality issues, that's a really, really big problem. So as long as Ubisoft doesn't fall into that and, you know, they can really deliver with this delay that they're now taking for the games, then by all means, take the time and do what you need to. The fans will deal with it and the fans will probably be grateful for receiving a better product in the end. It's just they really got to deliver because there isn't really an excuse once you put a major delay out like this. Mm -hmm. My major concern is how it will impact the later games coming out next year because the Watch Dogs Legion uh, Gods and Monsters they were all slated for around late winter spring and if they're getting pushed back that's going to overlap well it's it's going to potentially overlap with some of the big hit games that may be planned for the fall of 2020 like uh, the next Assassin's Creed game for example which I hear the rumors about it taking place in um, Norse mythology or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's going to disrupt one way or another. In fact, Ubisoft lowered its financial outlook for the coming year to $1.6 billion, down from $2.4 billion, and lowered its forecasted operating profits from $553 million to about $22 million to $55 million. So Ubisoft knows that trouble is coming, and I think... It's trying to plan for it, but how much can you really plan for this, really? In the same respect, if you know that something like a major disruption like this is happening with the products that you're planning on releasing, all you can do is say, look, we're going to make less money this year. You know, 2019 to 2020, we're not going to have as much money because obviously we're not putting out three major titles. And as unfortunate as that is, they're also trying to be optimistic regarding the following year. So Guillermo said that, you know, he was pretty optimistic towards how this is going to impact things later on. So he was saying, you know, 2020 to 2021's fiscal year is going to have, you know, net bookings of $2.9 billion and operating income around $666 million. So they're pretty much taking an L right now and they're saying it out the gates like, look, this is what's going to be the case. Yes, it sucks. But ultimately, this is probably, hopefully going to pay off later on. It just becomes a waiting game at this point. Um, in saying that, though, you know, they, they really did take a heavy hit after announcing this. Um, according to Business Insider, Ubisoft shares fell 16% the day after that these delays were announced. Um, so they fell from around $62 per share to around $44. Um, the company has since made a comeback to around $57 per share, which is which is great, you know. Um, but it, it really goes to show that investors got spooked. I think the faith in Ubisoft and these titles still should be there. It's just a matter of accepting that 
the money and the expectations need to be delayed a little bit. And hopefully Ubisoft comes through with these titles and hopefully the delays are really worth this whole kind of cluster of a situation. Worst case scenario, or maybe even best case scenario, their next quarterly earnings announcement will have all these new games added into it, boosting their profits way more than it would have otherwise. Yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to see kind of how things like when the dust settles from this initial announcement, I want to see where Ubisoft ends up and how the investment cycle kind of goes for them. We're in the middle of a free to play game boom, especially on mobile devices. The mobile games market is currently worth $70 billion, supported mainly by microtransactions, where players pay for in-game benefits or virtual items. Games like PUBG Mobile, Clash Royale, and Candy Crush are especially known for them. Although only about 10% of time spent on mobile devices is with games, they account for 74% of revenues across the whole industry. But as mobile games continue to rival PC and console games, the cost to acquire players and convert them into spenders has also been rising. It's reaching a point where free-to-play may eventually become unsustainable. It's very interesting. I mean, recent data from marketing firm Liftoff showed that it costs about $4 to acquire a single user, which may seem a little bit low until you factor in that you're trying to attract millions of players. <laughs> so attracting a million players is $4 million just to get them through the door. And there's no guarantee that they'll spend a single dollar on your game. On top of that, only 30% of users continue playing after the first month. That's an incredibly high falloff rate. On average, it costs about $35.50 to get a single mobile gamer to make their first in-app purchase, which is usually about a dollar or two given the game and what they're buying. But what it essentially means is that each game needs its players to spend $35 per person in order to just break even. And that's not sustainable. That's the crazy thing about it, though, too, is because I feel like, you know, there's so many people, myself included, who, you know, I play Candy Crush when I'm on the subway or something, right? So I don't have internet access, but I have something to kill the time just when I'm getting from point A to point B. And I personally have never spent money on, you know, getting further in the game or getting another life or whatever. But then there are other stories where you hear about people who spend like $70,000 on microtransactions for one game because they're so hooked on however the game functions that they just they can't they don't want to put it down. They want to keep going with it and they will spend real money if that's what it means. And I think it's kind of crazy that the mobile gaming industry has these two extremes. You know, you have your players who, as you said, they only continue playing after a month. So there's that quick fall off of, I tried it, I'm not into it anymore, I don't want to do it. And those who do continue playing but don't want to spend any actual real money on it, like myself. And then you have others who just spend so much money. And I'm just wondering if there's any kind of in between that these industries can create so that, you know, they can stay afloat and these games can stay afloat. But that, you know, you don't have to rely on those extreme cases of people spending a ton of money just in order for your game or your platform or whatever to survive. When you think about it, this sort of thing was inevitable because mobile gaming has just exploded so much over the past few years. It's incredibly popular, especially in China and other Asian regions. And as a result, the market is completely saturated with free-to-play games. You cannot browse any store on iOS or Android and not trip over a 1,000 free-to-play games. 
a lot of people believed the rising cost of acquisition could be compensated for through better understanding of player psychology, higher quality of games, all that stuff would balance out the inevitable rising costs. But that has clearly not happened. This is only a problem for smaller game developers. This is not a problem for the Nintendos or the Supercells of the world. These companies that can afford to throw millions of dollars into marketing and user retention and all that stuff, this is not a huge problem for them. This is a problem for the startups, the new IPs, the basically the the companies that don't have a huge IP like Pokemon to, to trot out and say, hey, come play our game. You know, Mm -hmm. the difference between now and last year is it seems like the problem is coming to a head and it's becoming way too expensive to acquire paying users. So what do you think is the solution to this other than to just have the entire mobile industry collapse into a small (laughs) handful of mega gigantic gaming companies? To be quite honest, like I I think it's going to be exactly what you just described. You know, if if we continue if we realize that this free to or free to play system is just not sustainable for companies who don't have the budget to keep it afloat themselves you know i i do think it may just boil down to a handful of big contenders you know the candy crushes the clash royales you know anything anything that's backed by a major company i think these up and coming game developers they either need to be in some kind of like shark tank scenario where they can get backed by a major company and have you know them take a huge stake in it maybe but still have the funding to remain afloat as a free to play game or they're kind of just screwed i'm not sure that they'll be able to sustain themselves among the big players if this is really what the costs are looking like just to just to even break even one possible solution is to to raise the price on these items, which I think will get tremendous backlash, especially if you're the first game to do it, unless it's like a huge concerted effort among publishers to raise prices on items, then this free-to-play model is going to go downhill pretty fast, in my opinion. Companies will have to figure out different revenue models or at least new ways to expand and and market their IPs, similar to the way Rovio expanded Angry Birds into this whole gigantic franchise with hats and costumes and and a movie and a TV show. That You have to do something like that to really boost your brand Mm -hmm. and keep the... and keep your game relevant. And hopefully that'll translate into paying users. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too because, you know, kind of as we were discussing earlier, the whole microtransaction debacle has has been just a, re- a really big theme and trend I think in the gaming space especially over the last like year or two. And just the way that that's growing among in console gaming and even PC gaming just everywhere. And, you know, now that we're looking at mobile gaming and these companies are quite literally relying on microtransactions just to keep their game going. You know, I think it's interesting just to see the the kind of the contrast between companies who are, you know, major console producers or developers that are introducing and keeping these microtransactions that frankly don't really need to be there. Like they're they're making enough money just selling the actual games, in my opinion. So they don't need these microtransactions. Whereas in the mobile gaming space, it's they actually do need them in order to make any kind of revenue. And I think it shows like an interesting contrast just between the state of console gaming and mobile gaming. And we're already starting to see the fallout with the closure of Backflip Studios. And I think we're going to see a lot more closures in the near future. 
Yeah, I think at this point, acquisition is like the biggest survival tactic for these smaller companies who can't stay afloat by themselves. And it might be unfortunate that that's what it has to come to. But if it works and people get to keep their jobs, then maybe it's the best thing. The video game industry appears to be transitioning into a subscription-based model. Although plenty of people are still buying PC and console games, the market is more crowded than ever with the inclusion of free-to-play titles. Services like Origin from Electronic Arts and Xbox Game Pass from Microsoft offer a library of games for a single monthly fee. The unexpected result of this Netflix-style model is that subscribers have an easier time discovering new games, and they're apparently more engaged, according to Microsoft. They recently talked about how Game Pass users typically play about 40% more games, including ones that aren't in the service. In fact, they recently announced that they're taking it up to the next level with the launch of Xbox All Access, which lets users lease an Xbox console for two years and includes an Xbox Games Pass Ultimate subscription. Are we seeing the beginning of the, the next phase here where we're going to see a drastic drop in game sales with the shift towards subscriptions? Yeah, I'm I'm very curious about this. Part of me, especially with this like Xbox All Access Pass, I don't know. I feel like Microsoft is really just trying to be like, hey, guys, look, the Xbox is still cool. I know we only have like maybe two or three exclusive titles that you guys are really jazzed on. But but hear me out. You can play all these other games as part of this pass. So like, do do you want to come get an Xbox? Maybe, perhaps. I'm curious to see if the other consoles decide to go for something similar to this, but I'm not sure if they'll need to. I, I feel like this is Microsoft's way of just trying to really bring people on and see that they have other titles that are worth playing because that is one of the things that they've gotten a lot of flack for over the years. So I I want to see what this is going to look like, especially with Project Scarlet on the way out. I... I have skeptical feelings towards it, but maybe it'll work. I don't know. What do you think? I think this is a natural evolution to what we've seen in the digital market so far. With the Xbox Gold membership and PlayStation Plus giving you two free games every month, that draws in users by itself. I mean, why not launch a subscription service? It is so tempting to subscribe to these because for a flat fee, you don't have to buy any new games. You don't have to spend 60 to $80 on a new game. And it comes with all the upcoming DLC. So you save money in the long run, supposedly, with access to the back catalog. So instead of waiting for the next Steam sale to pick everything up, you could just get it all right now. And we also have to point out that 2019 has been the year of subscription services. I mean, three subscription services are launching in this year alone. Ubisoft launched its subscription service. The upcoming Google Stadia cloud streaming service is launching later this year. And Electronic Arts expanded its EA Access program to the PlayStation 4 in the summer. Publishers are getting into the game and they're realizing the revenues that could come through this compared to straight game purchases. The question is, is this really a sustainable model in the long term? I mean, how many subscriptions are you willing to pay for? Are you going to pay for a subscription to every major publisher who really has the time to consume all that content? It's kind of the same approach as, you know, as you were saying with all these other streaming services. And, you know, when you consider something like Netflix and then there's Amazon Video and then there's Crave and there's all these different TV streaming services or movie, whatever you want to call it, 
you know, I know people who have three or four different subscriptions to these like Netflix, the Disney platforms, like everything available because among these platforms, you know, you have the certain takeaways. So in the case, for example, of Netflix, they have some exclusive original shows that some people are really big on, for example, like BoJack Horseman, Big Mouth, you know, whatever. But then with stuff like Crave, you have HBO, you have those particular titles that Netflix doesn't offer. And and it just goes on and on, right? So with the console system being kind of a similar, I guess, idea is that, you know, if you rack up all these different subscriptions, you have access to all the things. And I think, you know, it's it's less about how much time one necessarily has to consume it, but more so that they have the option and the availability to do that. And, you know, for some people, I think, being able to consume whatever they want whenever they do have the time is a really, really big draw. And so it would it would be interesting to kind of see how this plays out. This subscription model is heavily influenced by the TV industry with subscriptions like Netflix. That area is going through its own problems. And I think that gaming will go through these same problems too when subscriptions become the, the new in thing. It started off with people not wanting to pay too much for cable subscriptions. And so they would cut the cord and subscribe to things like Netflix so that they only get the entertainment they want without paying for anything that they don't. But then the costs just keep rising. And eventually the costs don't equal out. You're paying more for cutting the cord than if you had kept the cord. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... You know, looking at the way that the the Xbox uh, Game Pass is is meant to be kind of laid out. So with regards to the subscription service that's going to lead to that like least Xbox One console, members need to commit for two years and it costs $20 a month for the Xbox One S or $31 a month for the Xbox One X. And while the service is set to go live on November 18th through Amazon in the US, it's going to be a little bit of a tricky pathway. So some of the issues that may or may not be presenting themselves here is that in order to upgrade to Project Scarlet, users will need to hang on to their Xbox's original packaging and ship everything back in good condition when the new console launches in 2020. Another issue as well is that you can't use a credit card to pay for your subscription. Apparently, Citizens Bank will provide credit financing, which then requires members to go through the Citizens One application process. It just, to me, feels like a very convoluted setup. And I don't know, it just seems like a lot more work than it might be worth. This is obviously uh, an effort to promote Project Scarlet leading up to its release but it's done in such a haphazard way that it's just like what are you doing <laughs> it, it it doesn't make any sense i mean granted you do technically save money through this subscription like i did the math and you would technically save about $50 compared to just buying the console for retail price off of Amazon and then spending two years with the $15 premium subscription to to Game Pass. But at the same time, consumers will be locked into the membership for two years, which means that they can't cancel to save money for a little while leading up to Project Scarlet. I don't necessarily think that Xbox All Access is going to move the needle in the short term. Maybe when they refine the program a little bit more and not put so many roadblocks in the way, people will have more incentive to buy into or lease a brand new next generation console. The thing that really gets me with this whole situation as well is that two year commitment, because 
you know, I, I also think back to like Xbox Live and when that was, you know, revolutionary for the sake of cons- online console gaming. And I remember they had two separate options where you could get like a year's worth of Xbox Live for 60 bucks, or I think you could pay like $8 a month or something if you wanted it on the monthly subscription base instead. And yeah, the, the $60 one year subscription was definitely like the value subscription, but you at least had the option. And the fact that you have to commit for two years for this thing, I don't know, man, that that bothers me. And I feel like it's going to that itself might deter people from getting it, because, you know, if you get something, it's it's the same as any other subscription service where, you know, if you sign up for Amazon Prime for like a month and then you decide you don't really use it that much, you don't really need it, you can cancel. And then you've only spent the nine dollars for that one month subscription. Right. But if you're locked into something like this and you realize you don't like it, then they're just gouging you for your money at that point. And I don't know. I feel like this is going to lead to some people who want some form of in-between. And if they don't offer it, people are going to be pissed off. We're about one year to the end of the Xbox One's life cycle. So there's not a whole lot of incentive to buy into this right now and have to mail back your console at the end of 2020 to trade it in for a a Scarlet and go through that whole process. And you don't know how much that will cost if there will be an additional cost to to trading up or if you could just finish out your lease as is. If it bumps up the cost to trade up to Project Scarlet, then I think that's going to be a huge turnoff and you're going to have a lot of regretful subscribers and that's just going to get a lot of people angry at you. Yeah. And I mean, you know, this year alone, we've seen a lot of high profile subscription services launching. You know, Ubisoft has Uplay Plus. We got Apple Arcade, uh, upcoming Google Stadia, um, you know, and I'm just curious as to whether, you know, we're going to see more of this when the other consoles drop, because, you know, as it seems that Microsoft is launching this, as as you kind of were saying, as a lead up to the launch of Xbox or uh, Project Scarlet next year, rather. I'm curious to see as to whether PlayStation is going to jump on this. You know, they, there's already PlayStation Plus, which is its own separate thing, and it's similar kind of to Xbox Gold, which already exists. But I want to know if when the PlayStation 5 drops or perhaps even Nintendo's next system, whenever that's going to be, if we're going to see more... I guess, adaptation to this like subscription service model and if other people are going to or like alternatively, if the competitors are going to watch from the sidelines and just see how Xbox does with it and go from there. And, you know, that way they can kind of see if this is anything worthwhile, if fans take to it. And if it is, then maybe they'll implement it later on. And I'm wondering how this fits in with Microsoft's plan to launch the xCloud game streaming service. I mean, are they going to cannibalize their own membership with this program that they're going to launch probably around the same time next year? What is this going to mean for subscribers? If you're going to give users access to everything and then offer a different subscription that also gives a different kind of access to everything, but through almost any device, then which one are you going to choose? Are you going to choose the one that locks you into an almost obsolete console for two years or the one that that lets you play Halo on your phone? It's kind of crazy. That's where we are right now. I'm, I'm reminded of the early 2000s when MMOs were the big thing and all these publishers were saying, hey, you know, if we can generate constant revenues from making MMOs will we'll make millions of dollars. And yes, they made millions of dollars, but it eventually reached a tipping point and the market crashed when free-to-play games with microtransactions started taking hold because 
people don't want to pay a subscription for every single game that they play. Yeah, ex- exactly. So we'll we'll see how how this plays out. There's obviously a larger selection of games. It's great that it's getting people more interested in other games, even games that aren't available on the subscription service. So they're buying more games more often now. That's great. But is this really sustainable? And that's something that we have to see to find out. That's all the time we have for this week's edition of the Gaming Street Podcast. Our show is a production of Gaming Street and Enthusiast Gaming. It was written by Stephen Wong and myself, Olivia Da Silva, and edited by Conrad Zimmerman. Music was composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. For more news and analysis of the games industry, visit GamingStreet.com. Subscribe, rate, and review the show at Apple Podcasts. For Gaming Street, I'm Stephen Wong. We'll talk to you next time.